0: I'm Hambers and this is Waterproof Cover, the podcast where I meet the best cycling photographers, talk about photography, cycling, the fun times and the not so fun times. In this episode I meet with Benedict Campbell. He talks about the many changes of career in his life, how finding new challenges keeps him happy. He explains how his film about cyclocross, For the Love of Mud, came about and how he challenges himself every day in his craft. It is a really interesting and inspiring episode about a man with many, many talents. So sit back and enjoy. This is Benedict Campbell. The first time I met you, I think, was in 2013. I can't remember the year. It was two years roughly before you released For the Love of Mud. And we were sitting in a cafe in um, Victoria. And you, uh, you emailed me a few days before that whether you could ask me questions about uh, Cyclocross and you were just gathering information about just the cross scene and how cross works. And and that's how I first, first met you. And uh, I didn't really know who you were, uh, but then kind of our our paths crossed quite a, quite a few times in the, the, the next two years. And then you came out with For the Love of Matsu. So can you talk about how that idea came that you wanted to do, make a film about cyclocross. Yeah, just tell tell me about it. It was a a really, really, really nice film.
1: Yeah, um, it was quite... What happened, was I... I did my first cycling documentary that was um, It Ain't About Cav, and that was the uh, 2012 tour britain and it was the highlight of like Cav had got his world champ um bradley just won the tour de france so it was a super high super high year for um sort of british cycling and the tour you know i thought i'd do a very short film in the tour britain just go there and do a nice little thing and basically i'd shot so much stuff uh that I made it into full length feature. And it was i had done that and it was well received and it was quite fun. I really enjoyed making it. And, and then, but I'd always wanted to do a film about cyclocross, probably because a couple of factors. When I was a junior and I used to race, uh, I was made to race cyclocross in the winter and I didn't like it. I really didn't like it at all. Um, but I like riding off-road. I love riding off-road. And so as I sort of got older I started more sort of heading towards riding off-road. And I live in Oxford, and uh, there's plenty of countryside around, and there's plenty of trails. I like discovering trails. And, and I always thought that no-one had ever really done a good film about cyclocross. I had several assistants been working with that also into cycling, and they kept saying that they wanted to make a film... I said, why don't you make a film about cyclocross? You know, there hasn't been a really good film and you could do a short film. It's visually fun and um, it's it's a no-brainer, isn't it? And I was quite surprised that no one actually bothered to do it. And sort of a year later, I was thinking, well, why don't I just, do my next cycling film, why don't I do a film about cyclocross? You know, there's a lot to do. So I phoned uh, Ian from RULER who I knew was into cyclocross, and I said, I'm thinking about doing a film on cyclocross. What do you reckon? And he went, yeah, great. And so I just started asking him questions about you know, what was happening in the world of cyclocross. And half an hour later, I got off the phone and I turned around to my wife and I said, I'm really, really sorry. And she goes, what? He goes, this film I think I want to do about cyclocross is going to be a big one. There's just no way I can do a short film. It's too much to tell. And that was it. And That was the sort of the journey. And I'd um, gone up and done one of the London um, Summer League races just to sort of refresh myself on racing cross. And that's actually when the first time I came across you, you were taking pictures for the fun of taking pictures. And you'd actually taken a picture of me and put it on your blog and being a cycling photographer, it's not something you're used to, someone taking a picture of you. And that was kind of like, oh, that's a bit of a strange thing. But I knew that you, you'd done your books and you were really into the cross scene. And I thought, balance, a great person to ask about, all oh, you know, what races are good, what's happening. And so that's when I met you and we talked about, you know, all the best races and started drawing up calendars. Um, And then, of course, we, you know, got to see each other a lot over the first year (laughs) because we're at the same sort of races. And, you know, I fell in love with... um, I really, really enjoyed filming, um, for the love of mud. You know, the hard bit was actually the editing of it all because i shot so much and making it all work um it's uh doing a short film is one thing doing a full length on your own is is really really a lot of work and it virtually killed me the editing side of it but the filming was the definitely the fun
0: bit um are you are you happy how it turned out uh the film would you change much um yeah no i was i was happy with the
1: general it was it's a tricky film because it never—it's never going to please everybody. Um, what I wanted to do, I felt I achieved. You know, that, what I aimed to do was to produce a film that would um, embrace cyclocross and to sort of really for probably roadies and people that didn't really take it too seriously to sort of show them what they were missing and to to sort of generally inform people Um, some people were expected it to be more in depth of the sort of pro scene and to be more kind of like you know serious Um, but the thing is that if you haven't ever seen cyclocross before then you would have found that boring so the true you know sort of 100% cyclocross fanatics might find it a bit boring because they know everything uh but even then you know there were the things that the 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 one of the best things was the history because when i started researching it i started speaking to everyone i knew that would claim to know the history and no not one person knew everything and um that was the most exciting thing because I'd speak to one person and get a little bit of history and then I'd speak to someone else and get some history and then I'd discover stuff that people hadn't, you know, sort of come across and that was the most exciting part, piecing together the history of the sport. Um, So yeah, that was really fun and, you know, there were, uh, you know, sort of, the the, the the scene, the cyclocross scene is a lot friendlier and, and a lot more embracing than sort of other sort of cycling scenes, or a lot easier access and that was one of the, the fun parts, you know, getting through to people and chasing people. I mean there were obvious people that were difficult um, to get into. You know, and I met some amazing people that I, that are now, you know, my, my friends for life, um, making the film. So that was really good. You yeah. know, yeah, it, it was a love making. Filming it was the best experience. Uh, and then when I finished filming it I, it, 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 I haven't actually taken on, and I can't at the moment conceive taking on another feature length documentary because it was so tiring and so exhausting putting it together um, so it's it's uh it's definitely yeah uh, made me think about doing and think big again
0: um, one of the things you said you 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 were afraid that you are afraid that that people who are into cross state might find it boring and while it didn't probably say an awful lot of new things, but it was just so beautifully done that it was just a joy joy to watch. So for me, that's why For the Love of Mud is, is this important thing, because it so beautifully tells the story of what I love so much. And and when I show it to people who are not really to cross, but I want to kind of introduce them to cross, and there's a okay, I think I think I get it why I you, why, why you like it, so I think from that perspective it was, it was really good. but I find it even more amazing is that this is all done by you, and when I finished watching it for the first time in in Tabor, I think you did a little uh, uh, private screening, and I was like, okay, this, the, the music was quite nice, and um, I wonder who who did the music for you And I was like, "Oh, so you did the music. And then you were responsible for the sound. You did everything, and you did it excellently. So you are this kind of polymath. And then beyond this, film, just in general. You you paint. You used to do lots of other things. You not just so most people are say are a photographer, and they also do video. But like they're mainly photographer. It's very rare that one person does like two things really well. And then there you are, <laughs> and you do. A range of things, extremely well. How? How? How did that happen? How did you kind of become this this polymath, if you like?
1: Um, I'm not really sure. Um, I guess it's when I was uh, when I was growing up. I I might I guess it might be surroundings. I grew up in a sort of I grew up in a house full of Uh, architects and so I I gradually grew up in a sort of design world so it was no everybody sort of did something Um, and I guess it's just interesting things and when I first started in photography I actually uh, went into photography very early on due to I wanted to be a pro bike racer, basically, as a kid. And I had that in my sights. I was very much trying. I don't think I probably would have made it, but I was very, very committed to doing it. But then I discovered motorcycles, because I was into two wheels, uh, had a really, really bad motorcycle accident that I just about lived. And then that reset... I couldn't. It struck off my professional cycling career straight away, um, and made me think about what I really wanted to do. And I was quite keen on photography, and I'd always been uh, a painter, quite successful as a kid, um, because I'm very dyslexic. So everyone left me alone, and I could just they encouraged me to paint, but didn't really bother with anything else. Uh, So I'd already got those skills and my father was an architectural photographer so I spent plenty of time in a dark room and I suddenly had my first careers lesson when I was at school and the careers master basically said uh, so uh, occupations you could be things like and he said photographer and I went that's it, that's perfect. That's exactly the right career for me. Again, no 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 no, this is the beginning of a careers lesson. You're meant to like listen to all the things I no no, I know, but that's it. And from that day forward, I pissed off all my um friends because I was adamant that I was gonna be a photographer. And I just shot and I shot and I shot and I went through old rolls of film that I found in my dad's darkroom and I shot them and I spent all my money on film and I shot, 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 just kept shooting all the time, you know, finding whatever I could. So I was quite adamant that I was going to be a professional photographer and I thought this is perfect. And when I had my motorcycle accident and I had plenty of time to think because I spent four and a half months in hospital, I, um thought about. I was originally going to go to art college. The, the It all been planned out for me. I was halfway, halfway through sixth form and I was meant to uh, go to do a foundation art course straight after sixth form and then I was meant to be going off to St. Martin's and doing fine art. And then uh, if I still wanted to be a photographer... I could do a photographic degree and then photography. My parents were expats, so they were um, not in the country. And I got out of hospital and still with a broken leg. A friend of mine said that she'd got a job working in a photographic studio as an assistant. And um, she was on the first interview. And so I said, do you mind if I go... The interview, uh, an interview as well there. And she went, what, with a broken leg? Don't be stupid. I did. And the, uh, the studio said that they couldn't give me a job with a broken leg in a, in a cast. But just as I'm on my way out, one of the partners said, actually, I'm setting up in a few months' time, and you'd be perfect, and your leg would be fixed, wouldn't it? So that was my first job. I worked in a, actually, photographic lab and I was a black and white hand printer that is f- one of the best things for understanding because um, you would get photographer, very, you know, good photographers work and you'd make a print, but you would make their image better, you know. So it's about making something that's good from the beginning or, and make it even better. So that was a really good piece of grounding and it was generally I was in a lab so I learned all the technical stuff of everything, processing. So that was a really good grounding. Uh, and then I went off to London and was a freelance assistant for a while and I worked for some really sort of big name photographers so I learned every sort of element. Mainly it was in the fashion industry and then I went from into the fashion industry that at that time I always thought was the glamorous side of photography, the sort of you know the the you know the real high high end of photography. Unfortunately, it's a lot of hype, and it is quite fun, but it's it's exactly like every time it's portrayed on film or television, the fashion industry is exactly that, and uh, I couldn't I just couldn't hack it after a year. Or a bit more in a year I just could, I couldn't see past the you know the hype because um, it, it, it's very much the sort of emperor's clothing literally um, and if you you're happy with that and you're comfortable with that you'll be fine but if you like real life and real people it's quite difficult because no one's very real so I just you know I'd spend a lot of time and I it was a good industry for creativity. So I, I liked it for that. You know, you could, anything goes and you could invent things and invent ideas and looks and that was good fun. But it was, it's difficult, to, you know, to do it over a long period of time. It's really the people that drove me mad. And then I went, I found a job working in a car studio, photographing cars, and that's highly technical. It's, and I discovered, I did that for almost 10 years, um, and became a car photographer, that that was the rock and roll of photography. That was the one where you get paid a lot of money, you travel to the most exotic parts of the world, you stay in fantastic hotels, you get treated like rock stars. Um, there were literally just a handful of car photographers in the world. So it was um, this kind of exclusive club that you belonged to. and. It was in the 80s and there was a hell of a lot of money around so it really was the rock and roll of photography but you know cars after a while are these lumps of metal with four wheels and even though I'd been brought up by my father to appreciate cars and to you know he'd educated me in classic cars and I found photographing them day in, day out became a little boring for 10 years, especially if you're stuck in a studio for days and weeks, and they all start looking the same. They all start, you you, you you realise, you start thinking, oh, that's a beautiful car, and then it's like, well, actually, it is still just a car. It still does exactly the same thing as the cheaper car you've been photographing, and you know, it's it's not a bike, basically. Uh, so that bored me, and I started getting into... At, at that time, um, a lot of the big car shoots and big ads in the 80s were... They spent a lot of money on... You know, they, the record I know for, for one I worked on was two weeks on one shot. You'd build giant sets in giant studios... And I used to work with a lot of set designers and scenic artists and coordinate the whole sort of shoot. And I used to look at the scenic artists and go, oh, this is really good, fun, painting giant sets, giant paintings. And a couple of times I had problems uh, with scenic artists not showing up or something, you know, because they were the sort of most temperamental of the whole thing. So I had to step in and I found that I really enjoyed it. So very quickly I started doing scenic art and I used to do the big skies and, you know, it was, as a painter, I think it's nothing um, more uh, fun than doing giant painting, you know, huge scale paintings because it's kind of, and then you have to paint it out the next day. It, it's, it's good you know, it's, it's good fun, and you feel quite uh, I don't know, elated that you've got this giant painting. But also, I quite I was fascinated by special effects. So I used to, at that time, there was a, a sort of movement towards uh, trompe l'oeils and uh, 3D sets and, and playing with perspective. Uh, and coming from a world of architecture, and this all kind of like made a lot of sense. And also uh, being a car photographer who I could understand exactly how a set could be manipulated to, to to fool people. So everything was starting to come together where sort of multi-skills were, there was a reason for it. And so I used to do special effects um, and I became a specialist in special effects because I, I knew how the camera works, how the lenses work how the painting could be done, how the lighting. So it, it all kind of came together. And so I used to design a lot of sets. Um, and, you know, but I missed photographing people. Uh, so that was the only drawback with all those that. I kind of missed photographing people. So at the same time I was doing that, I was doing a lot of portraiture work just to stay human really and then I got commissioned to because I'd worked in the fashion industry and I was a car photographer that worked in the fashion industry and understood how to photograph people and uh, all of those things I used to get that kind of work as well so I was getting quite a lot of interesting work at that time and I started working for Coty Rimmel in London doing uh, perfume commercials because uh, I'd also was a fanatical film buff. So I used to watch a lot of films and I, I was desperate to get into filmmaking, but it was very expensive at that time to actually do any filmmaking. Um, but I'd worked on a few car commercials being an advised and then I'd got... Worked on sort of DPing car commercials, and again, because people knew I'd worked in the fashion industry, I got given a commercial that had basically the no one had liked, and they, they said that there's a there's we got an issue with this commercial, but we don't know what to do. A friend of mine just who was an art director said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. You know, I said it's. Just to me, it just looks like it needs to be re-edited. It's all there; it just needs to be re-edited. And um, he said, "Well, what happens if I gave you that project?" And so I re-edited a, a perfume commercial, and it and they were over the moon with it. And I, and I realized the power of editing. You know how much fun it was. I worked with an editor at that time, and so I got into making uh, perfume commercials just by sort of word of mouth. And I used to make a lot of perfume mood films. Um, That was really, really good training for filmmaking and editing, because we were doing a lot of films, and they were very open brief, and they were very emotive films. It was all about emotions. So you understood how to play with people's emotions by... Film, basically, and I was really lucky, coincidentally, because the editor that I was working with was a um, a guy called Tony Childs, who was a very old school film editor that uh, that was doing more commercial work, and I he was a proper old school editor who taught me all the old traditional skills of editing and how to you know do it the the proper way and I came to him with all these kind of yeah I know that's the proper way but what happened so we turned it upside down and did this and we used to bounce off each other and we started a great relationship working and we did that for a few years doing all these Sort of, I'd go off and shoot stuff and then come back, and he would actually edit with me directing the edit. And then he would pop out of the room and I would um, cut it all up and mess it up. And then he would go, What have you done? Oh, ah, huh, this is interesting. This isn't quite the rules, but it, I see how this works. So we had a great time, and that was probably a really important part of my sort of education. I left the studio, the um, car studio I was working for because it was, um, and started taking on other work. And one of the perfume commercials I was working on was the very early days of um, CG and 3D. It was a futuristic, sort of sci-fi styled commercial. And I started working and directing with um, some of the sort of very early CG work while i this was all happening at the same time, while I was doing this, I was thinking, "My God, this is something that would save a lot of time on these big sets that I used to spend time, and you could have sets that were massive, you know in there's no limit to your imagination, so in the evenings, I was started teaching myself um c g three d work um Uh, sort of secretly really, I started with very sort of basic programs and sort of building up gradually until I thought something I could use commercially. And when I left the studio, I needed to, you know, open my sort of spectrum of work to keep sort of jobs going. And I realised that 3D had a kind of CG work, CGI had a, future this is in the very early days of CG so I started really coming quite anally um, fanatical on it and building these worlds uh, and you know I could use my photographic skills for mixing you know photography I had my painting my retouching skills and then I had CG And what I discovered, there were no other photographers at that time that were doing CG. So, a lot of the CG artists um, were technically very good, uh, but they didn't really. They were more uh, technical. They didn't understand visual um, tricks and visual sort of references and and all of those things. So I found myself a massive advantage because I was coming from the the visual way. And I knew what things to do to make things look real, um, because at that time it was all about trying to make uh, photo-real three D work. Um, and then once you achieve that, it's kind of like okay, now you can make something look real. But now, how can you really make an image beyond real? You know, how can you do whatever you want to do? And that's what I found really exciting, and I started um, becoming into the sort of world of futuristic and um, uh, sort of sci-fi world. Sort of and that accidentally sort of slipped into it because they were the, the that was the market for CG at the time. Really it was kind of like these outer world sort of places and stuff like that. And the work that you would get would be um, uh, coming up with futuristic things and became one of a sort of of breed of future specialists. Because what happened was I started working with a couple of um, robot experts that had written lots and lots of books on robots and started visualising some of their kind of like, their their books and their ideas for either film projects or um commercials or ads, and then I'd already made quite a big name in the three d world just because I was different to everybody else, so I became one of the sort of the um the main sort of c g artists and that was exhausting time because it was developing so fast that and you became it was i just tried to describe it to someone as you like a like a, a wild west gunfighter because it's kind of like this is the wild west this is early days and to stay on the top you have to literally be constantly bettering yourself every day every week that's good but it's exhausting And there's always someone that wants to, is seeing you and wants to be as good, if not better than you. So you're constantly um, like paranoid that you've got there and you've got to stay on top. So it's a very competitive world and it's global. It's the first time I'd really um, got into a sort of global um, working space. You know, I was working for companies in um, Japan and. The U.S. and Britain and Australia at the same time, and and that's really nuts, basically. Because what you don't realise, I, I didn't even know which day I was in working in, because you're you're working forward, you're working backwards, you're working every you know in the, in the middle of the night to try and keep to all these different um, working time frames. and then uh, I would work with. Um, doing concept art for films or doing magazine work, and I became the robot man. So I became the number one go-to person for designing or making robots in the CG world. It was brilliant, but I don't know how it happened. Um, I just have no idea. It just happened. And that was great. And then from that, again... People had worked out that I came from world of architecture, that I designed all these sets, that I was a future, future specialist, I was on sort of like this roster of people advisory, you know, what's happening in the future, a lot of my friends were writers of, you know, the future, um, and I got this very strange gig in Japan where they said, can you Come to Japan. Uh, We wanted to look at um, doing these sort of films that we want to display in this nightclub um, to play all night long and to to give you this vision that it's in the future. And I didn't really take it very seriously. Uh, They sent me some air tickets and said, just come for a meeting, you know, just come to Tokyo. And I thought, well, I've never been to Tokyo. I'd been all over the place, but I'd never been to Tokyo. That'd be fun. And I went to Tokyo, and basically two years later, uh, it was a, it ended up as a two-year project that just grew and grew. I worked for a nightclub, a very, very big nightclub in Tokyo. And I went from making animations to look like they would uh, win views of the future world outside um to designing their costumes to designing the interiors of the nightclubs to designing i had in fact I had a whole um team a creative team working there, and the idea was is that I would um uh, be the creative director for for everything, and I had some great designers working under me. And get them to take over within a year, but a year later, they basically said, "Can you stay for another year?" And it's like, "Yeah." I was commuting back and forth to Tokyo, and it was brilliant fun. You know, was, um, uh, working in that industry was really, really you know, anything. I was employed because a lot of the Japanese designers that uh, completely shocked me because I, I was in awe of Japanese designers. Uh, at the time, you know, I thought that's where all the cool stuff came from. But what I didn't realise until I started working there is that it's uh, they were looking at London for ideas uh, and we in London were looking at f- uh, Tokyo for ideas and this was like a, this round circle of bouncing ideas back and forwards. So when I actually went to work there, it was so obvious and Japanese design... Uh, at that time uh, I didn't believe it until I was there was um, they are incredible taking an idea and improving it or or breaking it down and redesigning it but they aren't they are very nervous of starting uh, so if you think outside the box that was the problem they had uh, so a lot of the designers that I had, I, w- my sole job was really just to get them to think fresh, to think completely out of the box. Um, and that took a while, but it was very rewarding when, you know, you finally you get them to sort of stop robbing things off the internet and trawling through the internet for ideas. Um, you actually get them to sort of think of things using the sketch pad and... Their, you know, just their brain, uh, and that was quite an exciting time. But it is pretty weird, you know. And my sort of life is a bit like that, you know. So, uh, I get if I do one thing for too long, I get bored. You know, I haven't really done a lot of CG work for a long time, um, and I get you know people saying, you know, we want you to do a f- build us a futuristic world, and I haven't really got the interest in doing that anymore because you know, what I found with the the world of design and CG is that I spent was spending all my time in looking at a computer screen and I was missing being outside, taking pictures of people, um and, and what I consider real photography. So I decided that I, you know I wanted to try and break it up a bit and I wanted to basically go and shoot some more reportage work, some real life and things like that. So I started, uh, you know, going back to being, uh, you know, a reportage photographer. So when I started making uh, films and I started working for other people, like I, for ten years now, I've worked for Harley Davidson. What I was trying to do is work much more of a real you know, sort of as authentic world, you know, so shoot photographing real things and not CG, the complete opposite. And the first documentary that I made had no effects, no it was as one camera, one lens, very, very kinda of like earthy. It was deliberately a way of um, you know, relieving myself from this um, quite torturous world of controlling everything to having slightly no control and trying to, and finding stuff out of real world and that 's the attraction really the two differences you know one world you control everything you control the the landscape the people the everything you know the the weather, and then the other world you have no control, and that was quite. That was what I was missing, the no-control world. And that's... And, you know, bicycles. So I've all, always, always had a passion for bicycles, and that's my probably my way of escaping my work life is to photograph the world of cycling that I love. But I love the... Um, I don't try and ever manufacture anything you know what you see is what you get and that's the fun side of it but it is a very eclectic a very eclectic world that I live in and you know if I get bored of out of control situations that I'm photographing then I can just manufacture something in in my other worlds but um
0: Wow, yeah, <laughs> I think this is exactly what I was kind of referring to originally that you you have to just done so many things, so many different things, um and then you got bored and you just went onto the next thing and then you mastered that, and then you just got bored and went on to the next thing, but for all these things you reached a really high point and um uh, and I think most of us quite often, just kind of stay in something because they're good at it and we're good at it and it brings in good money and we just do it year after year after year and don't really have the courage to leave that behind, even if if sometimes it's a bit boring because it's just, that's what we do and know and, and you just, <laughs> uh, you just have the courage and I guess it's so... Wide range of skills just probably give you confidence that whatever you're gonna uh, start next, it's gonna be fine because it has always been in the past. You always.
1: Yes, it's a good point. Um, obviously, like everybody, I suffer from confidence every now and again. Yeah. Um, the um, because I haven't done a big film project for a couple of years now. Uh, I see everybody else's projects and how they've they've got better and better at what they do, and uh, you know, like uh, everyone else, I'm slightly intimidated. It's like, whoa, God! If I do another film, I've really got to step it up. And then it's funny. This morning, out walking the dogs, I was thinking, oh, I haven't done another film. Maybe I'm due another film. I'm getting those itchy, itchy feeling that I should do something um and then if i do something how do i go about it i don't what i probably won't do is try and emulate what my peers are doing and try and be what i consider as good as them well, i will do something and it will have to be different and i will have to look at whatever the subject i'm covering and really think about how I can tell it in a, a different way. Um, so that, I mean, that's how I'm probably thinking at the moment, uh, and it's the same with photography. Really, I, I'm always get I get very nervous when I realise that I'm doing something formulaic, form, Formulaic. Formulaic. Um, that's my always deciding factor when I step back and go, Shit, I'm just on autopilot you know I know it's this works, and I do it, and it looks good, but is there something I'm missing? Um, sometimes I believe in not looking at everybody else's work because it will it will make you start, um, you know, sort of falling into a trap of kind of like, oh, that works, you know, oh, I like what they do, I should do some stuff like that. Um, That always makes me nervous because I feel that in this day and age, especially more than ever now, because you see so much stuff that um, very quickly you, you will adopt someone else's style um, well, I am inspired by my peers. You know, I'm very much inspired. You know, I love I love um, um, a lot of my peers in cycling photography and other photography. I'm in awe of, and I, I I I get quite excited. But I have to stop myself from going, "Oh, that's really good. I should do that." And it's like, whoa, 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 no, that's what they do. You have to be. Different, and that's quite hard, um, because years and years and years ago in my career, I think I said on in an interview once that virtually everything's been done, and it's all it's it's not possible to come up with an original idea because you can always back trace it, and that's kind of true. Um, I get it in my um, working life all the time. You know, I get a a young art director team and they'll come up with this idea and they'll come this is like it's really exciting and it's really original and I have to I look at it and I wince and I have to break it to them that it's not that original and 20 years ago we'd done it in fact and then 30 years ago we'd also done this and sometimes these original ideas are like in my you know I in my career I've I've had jobs uh that they think are new and i have to break it to them that almost every five years someone's asked me to do exactly the same thing Um, and it does recycle it's the same with you see it with fashion and music and you know stuff gets eclectic but there is a limit you know you can actually source virtually everything back to something um Everything I've yet to see truly, truly original. But that's not a reason that you shouldn't try and think of something original, Uh, even if it is, you know, it goes back a long way. I mean, I I collect lenses. So my sort of, my anal side of photography is um, I'm a lens... I won't say collector, but it's, my, it's very much my hobby. I kind of study old lenses. I collect old lenses, I use them, and I, I get excited about old lenses. And I haven't met that many people that get quite as excited as I do about old lenses and as anal as I get. But whether anyone else notices, I don't know. I think it's just me. And it's I put it down to when I used to race bikes as a junior... Um, every year we used to strip our bikes down, sandblast them and respray them a different colour. Uh, and this would make, we believed, made us go faster because we felt like we were on a brand new bike. Uh, and I think that's really the reality of my lens collecting obsession is that having a different lens with a different sort of feel. And when I If I put this down into layman's terms, I mean, I collect a lot of 35mm lens and a lot of 50mm lenses. They are all effectively the same. I have a lot of the same lenses. Uh, I normally shoot on prime lenses that's a fixed focal length. um, And I obsess about these lenses. And I have multiples of the same lenses. So that's how bad it is. Um... But it may be that it just, I think that these are an advantage to me. And I don't think they're probably noticeable by anybody but myself. But it doesn't really matter. I think it just, it's a a way of getting excited about photography. Um, And, uh, you know, I see it with other photographers. They'll get a new camera and they'll start taking better pictures. It's not the camera. I don't think it is the camera. I think it's just that excitement about having something new and having a bit more sort of oomph behind you. Yeah. But it is funny. It's, just, it's the same way. Bicycles, you know, you definitely, people definitely go faster when they've rebuilt their bike and painted it a different colour or got a new bike. It's that new bike scenario. Uh, and I do it with photography, and mainly lenses.
0: It's a nice way into into gear and I try not to talk a lot about you know photographer gear, but I think you 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 make interesting choices uh just not not just lenses but you know most of cycling photographers use big cameras and you always turn up these up with these ridiculous little cameras and then you take these amazing photos and um um i think Two weeks ago, the to Tour of Britain, you were using this, uh, this Sony A six thousand or something, like something that you would never see at <laughs> at any sports photographer. And um, how did you did you ever have a big camera phase, or a, 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 and this is kind of a distilled down into 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 these small Sony cameras with manual focus, and or um, or you've always preferred these cameras? No, it's.
1: That actually stems all the way back to the beginning of my career. Um, we had cameras around the house, so I was really lucky that I could just pick up some really nice cameras and use them. They were um, so my, you know, I feel slightly embarrassed sometimes when I say my first camera that I ever used was a Nickel Mat. Um, that was quite a luxurious camera for a sort of 10 year old to take pictures on. You know, so I feel slightly embarrassed about that. Um, but my own personal camera was a lot cheaper. What I bought when I was, say, 16, my very first camera was a, a, a Canon AE-1 program that was, you know, uh, an SLR camera. But when I first went and worked in the studio, the format was 108. So we shot on a 108 camera. It's a great big plate camera, and that's what you shot on. And then sometimes we'd shoot cheaper jobs on a 54 camera still equally really big but that's the that was the industry standard and there were uh, in, it wasn't just the cameras but it was also the makes the, all the 54 and 108 cameras were sinar that's a, a you know the top of the range cameras and then some studios and the fashion photographers shot on hasselblads and my father had always sort of said oh you know if you want the ultimate in cameras this is Hasselblad you know so I'd always grown up with this like iconic vision that you know oh you've got to get a Hasselblad and when I was uh, a young photographer um, I bought a Hasselblad off a retired photographer and a lot of kit and I started shooting on Hasselblad and I kind of loved it but funnily enough when I turned, with all my peers, they considered it as a, a bit of a small little camera. So fashion photographers thought it was a sort of industry standard. But still life and commercial photographers, it was very much a kind of like, what are you doing with that tiny little camera? So, and then when I was a black and white hand printer, I used to print a lot of 35mm necks off some really um, great um, sort of magnum and reportage photographers. So I knew what the beauty of the 35mm camera was and I, you know, had 35mm cameras and none of the photographers I worked for had a 35mm camera. It was like what the hell did you shoot on a negative that small? And it's like, well because you can take pictures, you can't take a 10.8 camera around with you. And I couldn't believe that professional photographers didn't shoot 35mm so I kind of like would introduce them to 35mm that was kind of strange you know I'd still say yeah look but look what I shot last weekend how could you shoot these pictures any other way but a lot of commercial photographers don't shoot pictures and unfortunately now they're the same they don't do personal work or they don't do stuff outside work they see taking pictures as a job and they don't like taking pictures where I've never been like that I've always been kind of like taking pictures all the time so I've always liked not been worried about the range of you know from shooting from 10.8 to 35 mil in fact I even went one stage further and I got into shooting uh, one of my favorite cameras uh, quite a lot of the time was a Pen-F that's an Olympus camera the original sort of 60s and 70s camera, and it's a half-frame camera, so it's half of the 35mm frame. And I loved it because you've got 60 plus, you know, 72 images on a roll of film. Uh, and it had a look that was undescribable, indescribable, indescribable. Uh, it had a sort of look, and it was so small that people didn 't take you very seriously and I started using them for jobs. I was doing some quite a few annual reports for some big companies and I had this PenF kit that was the size of a very very small pellet case. It had two bodies, four lenses, and it it was a tiny and i f- I remember I flew into uh, a big company in Amsterdam, and we turned up. The art directors and myself with this tiny little case, and they kept looking past me and saying, "Where, where is all the equipment?" And I showed them the case, and they, they literally, the guy that was organising the whole shoot just went white. And he said, "Oh my god, what have I done? I've employed this photographer. And he's got what? You know." But what I discovered by using this Pen F is that it's so small and looked so sort of silly that when you photograph people and you thr- and you thrust up a giant camera in their face, they will behave differently than if you put this camera that looks like a joke, you know, between you and them. They don't think it's serious, so you actually get a much more interesting look at people. And that was the sort of eye-opening Thing to realising that small cameras um, are great fishing people. And it's probably why the truth of why the likers have still been, you know, the camera of a lot of reportage photographers, because they're, they're not taken very seriously by sort of the general public and people because they don't look like a threatening sort of big professional camera. So commercially, I have yeah, I use all sorts of sizes of cameras and different um, cameras. But personally, I always have very small little cameras. And then I've used these small cameras for commercial work because the images, the way that people react are, are different. Um, and then I've always been one for setting rules for myself Um, it's a very old photographic trick that I learned from my father actually who sort of said uh, well when you go out taking pictures today just take this camera and um, this lens and so you're not you don't choose the lens and I do this occasionally with my assistants and my sort of friends is I say, what we we'll do is we'll go out shooting for the day, but we all get to choose each other's equipment. Right? So you get one lens and it will be what I choose and, youth. and we're, we're also only allowed to go 500 metres from the point where we get out of the car. And this is really good. And this is what I mean about setting rules as a photographer to yourself. Because basically, you can do anything you want. And if you have a sort of a series of rules that you don't set, someone else sets, it gives you a sort of uh, somewhere to work and somewhere to really sort of look at the world. You know, if you know that you can, can only travel 500 metres from this set location... It means you've really got to open your eyes. And if you've been given a camera and a lens that isn't necessarily your choice, a fixed lens, you've got to really think about how you take the pictures. And it's a fun thing to do if, if you've got like a, a load of photographer friends and now everyone takes pictures so it's everyone can do it. But it can produce um, really good work and it makes you think as a photographer. And I put that... To myself, kind of every day, um, uh, you know, I just literally go, right, I'll take this camera and this lens, and I will have to make it work, and that will set a few rules that I'll have to go by, uh, but I'll keep it interesting, and that's why you always see me with ridiculous um, setups at CycleBanks, because everybody's got a great big zoom lens, and they've got big cameras... Uh, but very quickly, you'll find yourself sitting with everybody else or doing something. But if you've got something, sometimes Mickey Mouse or or ridiculous, uh, it just makes you think of it differently. And I think it helps. Uh, it's good fun. It does take courage, definitely, especially if you're being commissioned. Um, because someone tells you they want you to get this shot, like a finish line shot, obviously is difficult. When you can only shoot it on an iPhone or, you know, you've got a little camera. It's not impossible and you will do it if you have to. And it could be completely different and whatever. But because I work for uh, Ruler magazine, uh, where it's very much anything goes. And it's almost about looking differently at things. I can get away with it, you know, where other photographers... I know that they, they look at me and with either envy or disgust, I'm not sure what it is, but it's like, oh, it's him again, you know. If I, and I'll be in places where they don't expect, because I sometimes have to be. Um, so, yeah, it, that's why you always see me with silly setups.
0: ups um, What are you afraid of?
1: Whoa, that's a big question. Um... I suppose I'm afraid of taking the same picture over and over, you know, from, um, and not doing something differently. You know, I try hard not to, but I do see, when I look back at my work and I see,
0: oh, that's the
1: same picture just taken two years later. So that, that that's I'm afraid of. Um, I'm afraid of... Uh, losing my confidence as a photographer. It has happened, uh, so I know what to watch for. I had a year once where I started questioning everything I took and I stopped gradually, I stopped taking pictures. And it was very, very scary. Um, But it took an art director friend of mine to bring me back kind of by sort of saying, no, no, you know, pictures you've taken... They're, they're not rubbish they're really good you know it's you know don't think like that and I, I, it, it, that was a very scary time basically it creeps up on you. What happens is you you go to take a picture and you go well what's if I take this picture, is it that good? Will anybody else think it's good will would someone else take this better? Is this actually not that good? And then, is it worth taking? Actually, I shouldn't bother. There's no point taking. It's just going to sit somewhere, you know, on a hard drive, or it's at the time it was film, you know. It'll just be a waste of film. And then you start doing this. This comes more and more. And before you know it, you go, there's no point me taking pictures, because nobody's interested. You know, what am I taking pictures for? You know, Uh no one's paying me to take this picture Uh, and that was the worst time and I think it's probably quite common I think people probably it happens to a lot of people and you it takes somebody sometimes to sort of say to you no I love your pictures you know what you think is boring sometimes is great you know and So I I believe in encouraging other photographers, you know, when, especially when I think I can see they're slipping and they're beginning to doubt why they do stuff, especially if I like their work. I know a few photographers, I'm not going to mention any names, I know a few photographers I think I saw this happening to. And it's like, no, you know, I love your pictures. So I will, if I like someone's pictures, I will tell them. Some photographers, um, I know that commercial photographers in the world I used to be in, in London, um, they were paranoid of each other. They're very, very competitive, um, always going up for the same jobs. And they would never, ever say they liked a picture. In fact, if anything, if they liked someone else's work, they would make their hardest to look like they didn't like it because they didn't want them to know that they thought it was really good. That, to me, is ridiculous. And it is really... Um, stupid sort of behaviour, but it is very prevalent in some photographers. They're sort of paranoid about, you know, other people taking better pictures, where what you should be doing is seeing that they take better pictures and um, encouraging to take better pictures and thinking, well, I've got to step up my game, because that's how you get better as a photographer. And it can still be competitive, um, but it can be fun competitive. Uh, and it helps because everyone gets better. And I've seen that in, in my peers. I've seen over, say, four years, I've seen everybody get better. Some people, not so much. But generally, people have just pushed each other. Um, and that's really quite exciting. So, and that's what I enjoy, you know. Getting thrilled by other people's pictures.
0: Um, <clears throat> you you talked about your um, your career, which was really busy, and you you said you were commuting to Tokyo and all, all those things. And how does that work with with family? How did your balance work with? With family, because you you don't have a nine to five job, you, you're away quite a lot. How did that work? And I mean, I've been following you. I don't know your, your your family personally really well, but I follow you on on Instagram, and it looks like there's lots of affection. So you know, you clearly did a, a good job. So how how did that work for you? Um, sort of
1: lucky circumstances, I guess, at the time, and slight control. um I feel when I look back I realize that I I do try and control my destiny you know it it looks like it's a runaway train but it, um there is an element of control going on uh when I was very young in the silly sort of studio worlds because I started really really young uh it you used to work ridiculous hours so everyone who's ever known me has known that my job is never a nine-to-five. So uh, my family have always understood that and put up with that, really. Um, And I do, I would say, I'm the epitome of play hard, work hard, as in like I try and Play and as hard as I work, sometimes it kills me, and it's not possible. But I I try and do that, so I try and live life to the max. So I'm aware that I work very very long hours, so I try and put the hours in that I'm not working. You know whether I succeed, I'm not sure, but I you know my family have stuck with me so. Maybe, you know, maybe I do. I don't know. That's not a question for me. Um, I was lucky with, so I've got three kids. And when I was very young, the first two, Jasmine and Elliot, I was away quite a lot. I was traveling around the world. So I was not really around a great deal. So I've always felt guilty about that. Um, so I try and make up for it when I was around. So I try really hard. When one of the factors of getting into CG and uh, was that Lucy, my th- our third child, I wanted to be around the th- time that I'd missed out, you know, very early on. Uh, I wanted to be around for that. So I basically stopped traveling and was stuck to, you know, worked from a computer. Uh, So I was there, you know, to do all the school, you know, to do school runs, to do all those things. And then I'd work a lot at night. So I would make up time because I'd be working for like uh, a Japanese, uh, you know, or American... um, a work day so you know uh, if it was you know Los Angeles day it would start at five in the afternoon and I'd go through and I'd, you know uh, supper whatever and then I'd go back and get in my sort of cave and I'd work you know during the night so that was pretty good in so I felt with Lucy I spent that sort of early part that I missed with Jasmine and But I think I just try and compensate the other way. Um, And they seem to put up with it. But as whether I've done it successfully, I don't know. I guess I must. But I don't, I wouldn't like to say, you know, I always feel bad, you know. But I do milk, milk every second of the
0: day, it is said. If you could give an advice to your twenty-year-old self, what would what would that be?
1: Oh, that's yeah, that's that question. Um, so one of the to answer a question was a question. One of the questions that people often say is, "What would you change if you had to get to live again?" And I think about it and I go, "Fuck, nothing." shit, nothing. I wouldn't change anything because even the bad shit that happens in your life is usually, uh, builds you, makes you stronger in other things. So, you know, my world is not perfect. Um, people sort of think that when they look at Instagram and they go, wow, you have such a great life. It's brilliant. And it's like, yeah, I don't post the shit up. the, The bad things in life, um, I'm not going to be posting them up. So you're only seeing the edited version of my world that's lovely and sunny and um, exciting. Um, but I would say some of the worst things that happened to you, the worst things that happened to my, in my life have been, you can build on them. You know, they can actually be the the strengths. And I know it's a bit of a cliche that people kind of say, but... It is sort of true, you know, the, th- the people, you know, friends that you lose, the the things that happen to you, um, you can dwell on them and they can take you right down. Or you can sort of think, you know, how can I, you know, better this or how can this makes me appreciate life, you know. And that's probably the crux of it, you know. The thing that I quite often say to my assistants or people that I, uh, students that I had working with me, it's kind of like, um, and I say to my kids, um, is that it's so important to find a career that that you like. Uh, that's the most important thing. Don't chase money. Whatever you do, don't. Ever chase a job you think you're going to earn loads of money because money isn't the answer, definitely, definitely not the answer. Um, if you chase a job that excites you and it, it, it's interesting and exciting to you and you love, then you know the money side of it, you'll do it better, you'll be good at your job, and then you know you can decide how much money you need to earn to to be happy you know but to i've seen people that uh, photographers and other careers that basically have chased things saying yeah i can earn so much you know i could be rich doing this and that is basically where i think they go wrong you know, i see it you know i've seen photographers who friends of mine have been uh, much more than me. Um, They've had the lifestyle and they're not happy. They're just not happy, you know, and it all starts going downhill. They can't sustain it because they don't like it. You know, they hate their job eventually. And I think that's my thing that I remind myself, if I met myself 20 years ago, I say, just do what you're passionate about. Um, you know, I love cycling, so I like to photograph cycling. I don't make any money photographing cycling because it's there's not a lot of money in it. Um, but I enjoy doing it. Therefore, um, I hope that makes me good at doing it because I, I love doing it. Um, I'm lucky that I have a, a sort of advertising career that I can fund my passion with and that's how i work it you know i'll I'll put my head down and i'll work on jobs that aren't fun to me but they'll pay well so that i can then go off and make a film you know and self-fund a film Uh, and then i'm happy then i can do the job that pays well good knowing that it's going to fund something fun or you know something passionate and that's the way I, I guess I work my working life. And it touch wood, sort of works. It might come, it might collapse at any
0: point, but
1: that's just you know one of those things.
0: Cool. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope I'm going to bump into you in the next couple of couple of months somewhere. Matter. at a bike race. Definitely. Definitely will. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Waterproof Podcast. You can find photos and links associated with this episode at cyclephotos.co.uk forward slash waterproof cover. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast listening software. If you liked it, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help others to find it. You can find me at Cycle Photos on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you next time.